0: episode 131 of the pilot the pilot podcast takes off now
1: hi my name is michael johnson i work on business at avionics i'm an aerospace engineer by training and i'm also a private pilot
0: AV Nation, what is going on and welcome back to the Pilot the Pilot Podcast. My name is Justin Seams and I am your host. Today's episode is one that I thought I accidentally deleted. I just reached out to Mike, I'm talking with Mike Johnson. You can also follow him on Instagram at the underscore desert underscore pilot. Uh, I just messaged him and he's like, yo, dude, where's my episode at? We filmed this back in March, I think. And I was like, oh no. <laughs> so I had to search it. I found it. I thought I deleted it. It just goes to show if you ever have a podcast, make sure you make backups and backups and backups. Cause I had to use my third backup for this one. But aviation, nonetheless, here is Mike Johnson. We find out what it's like to be in aviation, what it's like to work in the aviation industry and not really fly for the airlines, for corporate, but you find out what it's like to work in a Corporate aviation department and uh, see kind of behind the scenes or hear behind the scenes of what he is doing and how he's building his time and how he looks at flying and wants to fly. So, Navy nation, I hope you really enjoy this episode. Please follow me on Instagram at Pilot as you will get some great content. Well, maybe great content, but you'll get some content. Let's just say that. Uh, I went flying over the weekend in Chicago in the most beautiful 182 you will ever see. So, make sure to go check those out. I'm a reeler now. So, you know, I'm putting up these reels on Instagram. Trying to take over the reeling world—that's even what you call it. But Nation, I hope you're having a great day. I hope you enjoy this episode. So, without any further ado, here's Mike Johnson. Michael, what's going on, man? Welcome to the Pilot the Pilot Podcast.
1: Hey, Justin, thanks for having me. I'm super excited to be here.
0: No problem, man. I'm excited to have you on. Uh, one of the reasons why I, I kind of wanted to talk to you and tell your story is because you are. A private pilot and you are also working in the industry so this whole I always preach that there's so many cool jobs but I feel like I mainly focus on pilots and people flying for a living but here you are uh, a private pilot flying for fun maybe you want to get in the airlines maybe not but we'll get into that later but you're also you have a career in aviation you have a job that is serving a great purpose for aviation and you're having a lot of fun with it yeah definitely Cool, man. So, uh, what I always ask first is why aviation? What was the original inspiration for you even to want to become a pilot or even get involved in the industry?
1: Yeah. So, I honestly don't even remember uh, like the day I started liking airplanes. I just always remember that, like just loving airplanes. Um, There's pictures of me and like my dad at the air show. We lived near McConnell Air Force Base growing up, which is in Wichita, Kansas. And we go to the air show, and there's a picture of me um, standing in front of a tire of the P 51. And it it was about as tall as I was. (laughs) So I've been, you know, I guess surrounded by aviation for a long time. My dad has always uh, enjoyed it. He builds lots of model airplanes. That's probably how I got into it at least. Um, and you know, most of my toys growing up, you know, kids, especially in Kansas have like tractor toys and farm equipment and all my airplane or all my toys were airplanes. And, you know, I would build model airplanes with my dad and go to the air shows and just, uh, kind of the, the thing, my thing as a kid, you know, some kids like dinosaurs. <laughs> I liked airplanes. Did
0: you have any aviation in your
1: family at all? I do, um, a little bit. So, uh, my, my grandpa, my mom's dad, he actually was an F 86 fighter pilot in Korea. Oh wow. Uh, so he's, yeah, he's got some great stories and some great experiences and he flew, uh, in, in the air force. And then he flew a little bit after the war, um, just for, you know, fun, personal flying. Um, of course my grandmother didn't, she was, it was so dangerous and she didn't want him flying still, but, uh, he would go and sneak out and rent an airplane and, you know, fly over their house and come home. And she'd complain that somebody was flying over overhead and it was loud and secretly that was him. But, um, he hasn't flown in a long time and that's the main, main source of aviation in my life. Now, uh, my fiance's, uh, father, so my almost father-in-law, he also got his private pilot certificate uh, when he was in college, I think in the eighties. Um, but that's about it. That's cool.
0: Uh, one of my, not necessarily a but one of the things I wish I could have had the opportunity to do was talk to my grandpa and ask him some of his flying stories that he had from World War II. Do you have that opportunity with your grandpa? Have you ever, has he opened up and told you some cool stories?
1: Yeah, yeah, a little bit. So he's, um, you know, he's one of the most brave men or individuals I've ever met. Um, whether that's, you know, obviously being a fighter pilot takes some guts, but just in life, you know, he's just one of those guys who does what needs to get done and and really focuses on taking care of everybody else around him. Uh, but so he's kind of quiet, but I did get to go take him flying recently. Actually, they live in St. Louis now. Um, and I went over there and rented a 172 from like this podunk field. (laughs) And, uh, we, we went flying and did the arch tour. And, uh, you know, I got to ask him like, you know, you kind of ask him stories and he kind of says, Oh yeah, it was fun. Or I trained here. And, you know, I, I ferried them, and I think you know after towards the end of the war, he was ferrying F eighty sixes from North America to Europe to like NATO nations, uh, and so he was based in Greenland. And the main story I'd always heard was that at some point there was a crash landing on on some sort of glacier, and you know they had to survive overnight, and that's why because we don't go to the beach. They lived in New York when I was growing up, and we go to the beach, and I'd say Poppy, why do your toes you know look funny? And it's because he survived a night out on a glacier, <laughs> you know, in in the cockpit of his aircraft. So. When I took him flying, I got a lot more, um, you know, more smaller, minor stories and memories. And, you know, I remember when we were we were adjusting our seats, he goes, be sure you get your seat locked because I've you know, known guys who have crashed. And it's a really, you know, it's it can kill you if you take off with your seat not locked and things like that. But, yeah, the main thing was the the, the biggest story he talks about is when he was in station in Greenland and, and ferrying them. And the weather there is just terrible. Uh, and the, the air force base, and I think it's still actually an active airfield is at the end of this, um, fjord, I guess, for lack of a better word, I'm not sure what they call it in Greenland, Greenland, but, uh, if you go missed pretty much the procedure is, you know, turn right this heading and follow it. And eventually the glacier kind of slopes up underneath you and you just meet it and land on the glacier. Um, and so he went, you know, he couldn't get in, it was acting with the weather and they circled and we're getting low on fuel and, uh. So so they they had to do a crash landing on the glacier and, and they landed there and uh, stayed overnight. And of course no one could get to them until until the sun came up in the morning and the storm had passed and he just spent the night in his cockpit, no heat, nothing, just you know, practically freezing to death. Um, and he doesn't really talk about who he's with or or what exactly happened, but I I've been through, you know, once I started getting into aviation and I'd go there and we'd go to the attic and he'd pull out. He's got charts and plates and everything from those airfields in the northern atlantic from when he was flying and we talk about him and there was a telegram stuffed in there that was sent to uh, my grandma his wife uh saying you know thank you for your husband you know you saved my husband's life and things like that so it doesn't really tell us exactly what happened but you know I'm sure something he did something really brave and great because uh somebody was thankful for it. Wow. That's
0: crazy. I mean, you, when you're a kid and you go to ask that story, especially you're just like, what's wrong with your toes? And then all of a sudden you hear that and you're like, uh, I'm just going to do something else. And I don't know how to respond <laughs> to that. It's like, okay. Yeah. But when you're older and you can kind of think about the different pressures that they're under, the different kind of circumstances and what they're doing. And, and when they tell those kind of stories, your eyes are just like, what? And you're just like, yeah. you're kind of in disbelief of that, especially when now it's like, I mean, obviously there's there that could happen today but i mean like the circumstances were a little different with a war going on and just what they're flying and the dangers were a little bit different than they are today but i mean there's still dangers out there It just teaches you that you need to prepare for any situation
1: exactly exactly
0: so when did so obviously you said you're into aviation was this uh like a fascination or was this say i want to be a pilot i want to be you know, i want to go to school for aviation or was it just kind of like a hobby
1: Uh, so it was just kind of like something I liked as a kid. Um, and I remember in high school, you know, they're like, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? You're 16, you're qualified to make that decision. And, uh, I'm trying to think, you know, what, what do I like? Um, and I was always in band. I was a huge band nerd. So I was thinking, I guess I could do like be a music teacher or do something with band. Um, but you know, I I was never that passionate about music. I I didn't think that was quite the right track for me. So I was kind of just trying to figure out what do I like? And, uh, I started to get more you know, involved in math classes and then and started enjoying math quite a bit. Uh, and I didn't realize I was good at math until like sophomore year of high school. So it really shows that, you know, just because you're not good at something early on, eventually maybe you get a good teacher and you're like, oh, I do like this. Um, but then I remember one day I was uh, driving. Uh, so Boeing used to be based in Wichita uh, and I was driving down this street that kind of splits uh, Boeing. Uh, and on the right side is the, the runway for McConnell Air Force base, base, which Boeing shared on the factory, and the Dreamlifter was landing. And in case you're not familiar with the Dreamlifter, I know someone's not familiar with the Dreamlifter listening, it's it's a 747 that's been modified to have, I don't know, maybe twice as wide of a fuselage. So it's just this monster of an airplane. And it was landing, um, and it, you know, it was on short final, all the flaps were out. Um, and it, I, I just remember watching it and thinking, how is that thing even... Flying right now, I mean, it almost looked like it wasn't moving, and it was just so graceful coming in, and it was yet yeah, so massive. And I thought, oh, who who works on that? I wonder how I could do that. And and then I went and kind of did some research um, online and who designs airplanes and things like that. Um, and then I was like, oh, I could be an aerospace engineer, and I get to do math and do airplanes. You know, I never even thought of doing some sort of career with airplanes. So um, that was kind of the aha moment I had. Um, interestingly enough. I never even thought of becoming a pilot for a while because, you know, back then, Poppy, my grandpa, he never talked about being a pilot. Um, So it wasn't really in my range of possibilities to be a pilot even. So as soon as I kind of figured out about being an aerospace engineer, that's what I set my mind on. And that's what I wanted to do
0: what uh so what were the next steps so obviously people have these dreams and goals and they, they maybe they, they just stay as dreams and goals and they're always kind of like oh what if if I ever tried to do it but you uh, you actually did go to try to do it so someone that's in in high school still that finds out they like math wants to be an aerospace engineer rocket scientist whatever it is what's next what's the process uh colleges like what did you do to prepare yourself to to apply to schools what schools did you apply to and why did you eventually choose where you chose
1: yeah so um yeah, the first thing is just apply to any sort of college or university or, um, you know, the, the typical route is go to a four-year university and get a degree in aerospace engineering. But, um, you know, that one size approach may not fit everybody. Um, I had some friends who uh, went to community colleges first and did their basic, like, you know, first couple of years of courses and and then transferred to a, a bigger school to help save some money. Um, but yeah, I applied to the University of Kansas. Um, I grew up in Wichita, Kansas, like I said, so it was kind of up the road in Lawrence, Kansas, Rock chalk. And, uh, I, it's the only school I applied to actually, and I I don't know why, but I just always wanted to be a Jayhawk and, um, mainly just the experience of, uh, being a student there, their, their engineering program is, you know, is great. Um, it's not any, anything like MIT or, you know, it's not world renowned, but it's definitely a good solid program, uh, in-state tuition, which was (laughs) a huge plus. And, uh, yeah, so pretty easy. I guess stacks of scholarships, you know, if you get this test score and you're an in-state resident, then here's some money. So it was a, it was a good way to help save some, save some money on, on education, uh, in a great place. And so I just applied and got into the school of engineering and you go, go and study to become this aerospace engineer.
0: You definitely didn't go to Kansas for the football team. Though, that's for sure.
1: Oh dude. Um, oh, and yeah, so you being at Ohio state, you had a <laughs> real football tradition. You did beat um,
0: Texas though a couple of, what, was that a couple of years ago? Or was it this that year? was
1: that was one of the single greatest days of my life. It was my senior year of college. I was in marching band all four years. Um, and I loved being in the marching Jayhawks. It was probably one of the greatest experience I had in college. And it was my senior night, and we beat Texas, as you know, in overtime. And it was just I mean, it was <laughs> surreal. I still think back to that, and you know, I just can't help but smile. So yeah. I sat through every single home game for four years. You know, I had four coaches in four years, I think, and I think I saw you know a handful of wins. Um, so you deserve that win. You earned that win. Oh man, yeah. that was like almost felt like everything was worth it. That's funny. <laughs> Which it still wasn't, but it was nice. My quarterback
0: coach from Ohio State is the head coach at the University of Texas. So that was a. Uh, I felt oh. bad for him after that one. I was like, oh my gosh, that's not good. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, he's uh they they got a good team so we'll see about that. But yeah, so uh people that, that kind of have this idea of an aerospace engineer. You mentioned earlier that you didn't even realize that you were you're were good at math. that You like math. You kind of never even thought about it. You mentioned how it is important to have a good teacher to show you this, but How late do you think you can figure out this is something you want to do and still go into it? Do you have to have some sort of like crazy prerequisites in high school to be able to apply? Do you need to find this out like sophomore year, junior year, or can you be a a freshman and be like, oh, you know, airplanes are kind of cool. I could build one.
1: Yeah, I think uh, there's no wrong way to do it. Um, If you want to go in and do it in four years, you're definitely going to have to have the prerequisites met in high school, Um, you know, like. I think take through calculus one or, you know, those, those kind of things and make sure you have high enough test scores because the school of engineering did have a little bit higher like ACT requirements than, than just the general university, nothing crazy. Um, but you know, just, it was a little bit higher. Um, so if you have that out of the way and kind of have some prerequisites from high school, you can get in and, you know, go and do the degree in four years, which is what I did. Uh, but you know, if you transfer in from a different school, um, transfer from a community college, or even you decide, you know, a year into college, you you want to become an aerospace engineer, you can definitely switch into it. It just might take a little bit longer. Um, so I, I would say four years um, is is difficult. You know, it's 18 hours a semester for the, you know, 18 or 19 hours a semester for all four years. Uh, five years is becoming more common. Uh, and and then, I mean, even there were some people in my class who were in the military for a while and, and then went to college, or I, even guys who are 50, I remember this guy vividly. He was in my calc class, and you know, as a freshman, you kind of talk to everybody. You're looking to make friends, and he he was just sticking out like a sore thumb. uh, You know, middle aged man, but he was so nice, and he was in some of my teams. And he just decided to change his career and go back. So you know, it's never too late.
0: Yeah, I mean, that goes for anything. Like that's flying. That's you want to be an engineer. If you want to change your life, it's never too late. It's up to you to make that decision and just go for it.
1: Yeah, definitely for sure. Um, It's you know, the degree itself is a lot of work. It was. It was not easy. Um, I had a lot of friends who had different experiences in college uh, because of, you know, the, the maybe the more free time they might have had. But uh, it's a lot of work, but it definitely pays off. It's really fun. You know, as long as you have a passion for it, it's all just really cool stuff. And the day-to-day might be uh, less enjoyable. But at the end, you look back and think, wow, that was, that was a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, I mean, I remember seeing engineer students carrying on a whiteboard and just like just like feverishly writing down crazy formulas and having to memorize all this stuff. And it's like, that looks terrible.
1: Good luck. (laughs) Yeah. It was, it was pretty much like up till two or three in the morning. I don't know, five nights of the week in a lab, you know, especially junior and senior year, just trying to get things done. So, but, uh, you know, it's worth it. How do you,
0: uh, so you you were in the the marching Jayhawks. I don't want to disrespect you by saying it wrong or not calling it right, but <laughs> you were in the correct. marching marching Jayhawks. Um, that is a big time commitment. I mean, doing band, I mean, especially at Ohio State, I'm sure you're familiar with Ohio State's band. I'm oh, guessing yeah. most universities are the same way. I'm sure they all practice just as not much as Ohio State does to try to to be as good or better, whatever it may be. But talk about that time commitment with band and engineering and being a college student. Like a lot of people kind of think that maybe they can't get through college and they don't have a, and they're not into anything else like that. But then there's also other people there that are interested in doing sports in college, but talk about your own personal experience with uh, trying to manage time when you had so many time commits, so many things coming after you in your time.
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And it's a skill that definitely doesn't come easy. So, you know, if you're struggling with that, um, everybody does. Uh, especially at the beginning um the biggest thing so like the March of jocks like you said was pretty much all game day that was you know that that day was lost to any sort of progress outside of band it was a, i loved game day it was really fun but you, you wake up at five in the morning you have to be there at like five thirty or 6 if there's an 11 a.m kickoff and then you don't get home until 6 p.m and you're just tired um and then uh we had you know rehearsal three days a week for a couple hours each time and then of course there's always extra rehearsals and performances you have to go do and um, the biggest thing I think was just trying to stay proactive with um, schoolwork, uh, and then and then finding what works best for you uh, as far as being productive. So I was also in um, this—it's uh, a music fraternity called Phi Mu Alpha. Um, so I was heavily involved with that. I was president my last two years. Um, so between that and band and school, um, it was really important. I found the time that worked for me. Um, a lot of engineering students, or a lot of students in general, you know, stay up till three, four five in the morning working on homework. Um, and I, I always noticed there was a point that <laughs> sometimes it was even as early as like 10 PM or anything past that was just, you know, it wasn't getting done. It was taking way too long or too frustrating and I didn't work. So I started uh, actually going to bed earlier and then waking up sometimes at, at four in the morning to work on homework, um, which sounds weird. Um, but I was productive, you know, wake up, drink my coffee and I could get stuff done and it was quiet. So finding, uh, finding the time slots that work for you. Um, and knowing that that doesn't have to work for everybody else. Cause that was definitely, most people didn't do that, but it worked for me. So that's what I did.
0: I agree. Yeah. That's good advice. And when I was going through college and playing football and, and sports and both of those, I always thought that I had enough time to do everything because I didn't know any different. And looking back on it, I on, I honestly think having too much time is more kind of is more of a danger than not having enough time, if that makes sense. Because if you can manage your time right, you can get everything done. And if you're used to that, then that's fine. But if when I did so, say like we had a week of bye, or like a bye week, we didn't have practice as much as normal, or we had some more free time, it was so much easier to let time go. Be like, oh, well, I have all day. I'll do this later. I'll do this later. I'll do this later. I'll play one more game of this. I'll do one more thing of this. Or so will hang out with my friends. But when you have really kind of strict time commitments, you are forced to be creative, and and it keeps you out of that mindset of "I can do it later."
1: Totally agree. And you know, another thing, my mom, both my parents have always been incredibly supportive, but they also drove home, "You're only going to be in college once. Like, don't." Especially my mom, you know, she'll talk about how. I didn't appreciate, you know, being young when I was young or being in college. And so then I was like, I have to enjoy all of this and do all the things. (laughs) So I I was extra, you know, extra sure to be sure that I was staying involved and staying busy and, you know, not just lounging around all the time. Obviously it's going to do that sometimes. Right.
0: I think it's a balance. I mean, I I like to tell people in college to try to get their flight hours as fast as possible, get their ratings as quick as possible, like grind it out, really grind it out. Because as we're seeing now, a seniority number is so huge in the airlines and in the aviation world that... I mean you can you can find a way to do both but I do think it's worth it to to work as hard as you can to get all your hours and get all your ratings you can still enjoy college and you can still maybe skip a couple parties which will be a benefit down the road I promise you
1: <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. I mean
0: like you it is important to to find a good balance of what works for you some people can just need just study and don't really need a social life other people are more social than others so it really comes down to what works for you like you said time slots that work for you study times work for you when you want to be social when you don't want to be social so it's really just kind of figuring out kind of taking all the information in and who does what and figuring out what's, what works best for you definitely what were um so i remember engineers my friends are engineers they were always doing um summer internships did you have summer internship opportunities
1: yeah i did so um generally after your junior year uh is I would say the most common summer to get an internship, but it kind of depends if you can get one after your sophomore year. Um, I, kind of almost luck of the situation. Um, so I ended up getting an internship for uh, the summer after my sophomore year uh, at Cessna, actually. So um, they were they were at the career fair at, at KU and <laughs> talked to the guy. And I've always enjoyed talking to people and then having conversations. And I was hugely passionate about airplanes and uh, clicked well with, with the hiring manager, got an interview and ended up getting an internship. So I spent two summers interning at, at Cessna. Um, the first summer I was in maintenance engineering. And that was quite the experience. Um, I mean, that was hugely foundational, I think, to my understanding of aircraft and aviation. Um, because up until that point, you know, first years of college are mostly, you know, all your math classes and your basic physics. And you start you do you do take some aerospace classes, but it's nothing, you know, there's no aircraft design. It's like, okay, fluid mechanics, basic things that you need to apply. Um, and so this was the first time I had been around airplanes for real. You know, I'd built plastic models. That doesn't teach anything about airplanes. <laughs> so, um, my, my group was responsible for writing all of the maintenance procedures for the aircraft, uh, for all the citations. And, uh, they, I think you know, use MSG three, which is some sort of, I still don't quite know what it is, but it's some sort of standard for maintenance procedures. And, uh, all the guys that I worked with were actually old A and And so they'd been turning wrenches most of their life and then now have a desk job. Uh, and so I was the young engineer uh, who has no experience with working with his hands? <laughs> so that was quite the experience. Um, you know, the job itself was a desk job, but we were, our office was in the hangar at the Citation Service Center in Wichita. Um, so the office smelled like jet fuel. It was great. You could go down there. You know, you had questions about something. You need to look at an airplane. You've got four hangars full of citations, from you know brand new citations to some older models. And um, so they would take me down there and say, "Now look here. This is how you do this, or this is that." And you know, I remember I had to write some procedures. And I asked, what does it mean to sump the fuel? I had no idea what that is. And they're like, Oh, well, let's go down there. And then we crawled into the wing and like, so you got to stick the thing here and sump the fuel because, and then I learned, you know, and you see it in the real, the real aircraft. And that was just such a great experience. And then you got the guys on the, sh- on the shop floor who, you know, you walk out there in your business casual and they're like, Hey, are you an engineer? And you know, uh, my response as an intern was almost. <laughs> and, uh, so they say, come over here and let me show you how you screwed up. And then you're like, oh, gosh. So you go over there and, you know, they tell you, why would you design something where I can't, you know, uh, engineers are famous, at least from a mechanics perspective, for making stupid designs that are not actually maintainable. Um, so that was some good lessons, too, having the guys on the shop floor just explain, you can't do it this way because my hand, you know, can't bend an S-shape to get through this nook and cranny to turn this bolt. So things like that. That was a great experience just to be around airplanes. Um and then the next summer, I worked in advanced design, which was kind of more what I wanted to do as a career. Um, and so that group was responsible for kind of pretty much marketing would say, we want an airplane that competes in this market space uh, and it needs to be best in class and everything and the least expensive. And they're like, OK, <laughs> so, so- they go off and.
0: So like FedEx comes to you and says, we want you to build a plane, named the Sky Carrier that can do all this stuff. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah.
1: yeah. Whether it's like that from FedEx or whether, you know, Cessna is trying to punch up into higher markets with like the Hemisphere that's since been canceled. Um, so sad. Yeah, I know. Very sad. So I, uh, that's what I was actually, when I was working there as an intern that summer, I was working on the Hemisphere and, oh, wow. you know, it was kind of the early days of the Hemisphere. Was and it they were fig- Was it called the Hemisphere then or was it called the Columbus? This was the Hemisphere. So actually, okay. yeah, the Columbus was uh, back. They were they were designing that before the 08-09 financial climb, uh, uh, okay. crisis. And then that got killed. And the Hemisphere was kind of the, you know, addition to of that. Um, but in that role, it was great. You know, you kind of, you're figuring out what what size of wing do we need? What specific wing design are we going to use? Where are we going to put the wing spars? Okay, what's the weight and balance of the aircraft? How long is it going to be? You know, all of those super engineering aircraft design stuff that i thought what an aerospace engineer does is what that group was doing so that was such a fun internship to work um on that and of course as an intern i wasn't doing anything you know they were giving me decent work but it's not like i was designing the wing right but you're there and you're watching them do it and it was just so such a fun experience and you go in the rooms and they're arguing about we need to move this bar back three inches because we need more you know space for this thing in the front we're like oh no that cuts into our fuel and just there's no free lunch um, is what they always said, right? You, you know, you need to solve one problem. <laughs> and by solving that problem, you create another problem. So it was really fun.
0: Well, sorry. So you don't have the answer for Cessna, but based on your experience there, anyone that flies a Cessna or at a company that has a bunch of Cessnas, they'll always kind of say, uh, or Cessna always say that it's a brand new product, but a lot of times they're using old designs from older aircraft, like the, the longitude, I'm pretty sure it's like a Hawker wing, and they just kind of mix and match and make it work. They're kind of on the, the mindset of tried and true with uh and and rather than kind of re-innovate and recreate or not innovate you know what i mean but what was that your experience or like well why don't we try the hawker wing see if that works all right the hawker wing doesn't work let's try the 10 wing all right that doesn't work was that your experience there
1: i think um so yeah of course this is my opinion uh, you know from being there for two summers but uh i think that it's it's definitely true that cessna's in the business of making good airplanes um regardless of what that means uh you know how they're going to do it and and look look at the market space they play in right citations are you know you you've got i don't think they make the mustang anymore but you had a very light jet up through now super midsize right with the with the longitude um but most of that market is the lower lower cost um you know business jets for smaller companies or individuals um and the the best way to reduce cost is to not reinvent the wheel every time you do something um and if you have you know it, the the, the lot of the longitude does have a hawker wing um and it worked it was a good wing and it fit the design requirements so why we already have the tooling we already have we know how it functions why redo it um the hemisphere was a lot more i mean that was that was a clean sheet airplane um so that was going to be a lot more you know brand new innovative not reusing a lot of stuff but look at this like the CJ's right they just stick a fuselage plug in you get a longer airplane do some minor tweaks to the to the rest of the airframe and then you got a, a bigger better airplane
0: <laughs> no it's true i mean it's tried and true it works why why reinvent it if it, if it's not broke you know so you can definitely put together a good plane it's interesting about the longitude because you look at it and from like the door forward, it looks just like the latitude. And then you look from the back or you look from the door beyond and then you got the, the swept wing of uh, the hawker. And then there's other kind of, you look at the tail. I don't remember what the tail was or if it was new, but I remember someone was like step-by-step. So step. where I work, we have uh, the longitudes too. And they are looking at them and they're kind of like taking a step-by-step step of what it looked like. And it was really interesting to kind of see that because it's definitely true.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: When you are in college, say someone. All right, so say someone right now is listening to this and they want to be an aerospace engineer. What is like? What does that mean? What does that mean for job prospects? Like, what what is like the far reach that they could go from like one end to the other for using an aerospace engineer? Or is it like you just go work for Cessna? You work for Boeing? You work for
1: Embraer? Or is it kind of all over the place? You can do uh, almost anything you want to do from a technical standpoint. Um, so there's, there's two main tracks, uh, with pretty much any aerospace program. Um, you can either go into aviation or you can go into space. Um, you know, I've always thought I've always appreciated space. I think it's neat. Who doesn't think NASA's cool. Right. But, um, it never really got me going the way airplanes do. I mean, airplanes are are the thing that I'm I'm super passionate about. So obviously I was going to go down the aviation path. Um, then from the aviation path and really, really, this is true for both whether, whether you're doing aviation or space, um, the main areas uh, that you might work in uh, as an aerospace engineer are sh- structures. So, um, so for example, um, you know when I was at, at Cessna, we went one time to the 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 I guess lab for lack of a better word where they have a full size. They they're doing the longitude testing. They had a, they had a latitude or a longitude, and they put it in this this harness essentially and flex the wings up right, and then see where the wings break. And they have to make you know at least one hundred and fifty percent of the max load. Um. So structural engineers would go through and say, okay, how can we design a structure to meet these guidelines from, you know, the federal federal aviation regulations and, and things like that. They do the stress analysis They make sure that the aircraft is sturdy and solid and, and is going to be able to perform structurally. Um, you can do aerodynamics, which is more the, you know, looking at the airplane on the outside. Like, how do we design the wing to be more efficient? Um, you know, how can we have a laminar flow fuselage or, you know, things like that um you can do systems uh so you, i mean systems is such a, a wide term but you know aircraft systems you could you could ex- be an expert in all of the wiring or in the avionics or you could even work uh, you know in in the cabin you could do design seats that that are safe for a crash and withstand certain amount of g forces um and then the other main area is going to be propulsion whether that's piston engines jet engines um you know for air be- breathing engines or uh, rocket engines. And uh, those those are the main areas. But, you know, it's important not to limit yourself to just, oh, aerodynamic structures of propulsion. Um, because with this degree and any engineering degree, you're just getting a, a pretty much a piece of paper that says, I know how to learn and I know how to think critically. And you can kind of use that fundamental skill in almost any industry.
0: Have you found, so obviously in, in college (laughs) engineering is a lot of math. Have you found that you've been using all that math that you learned, or do you think sometimes, or or is the teaching a little bit outdated? I've always been wondering to see if you're like doing all these equations when you're, when you're working or in like real life engineering, you're not really using them as much.
1: Yeah, absolutely not. So (laughs) unfortunately, um, my, my specific job, no. Right. But, but, it's important to learn all of those super complex equations and then how things work because, yeah, that's true, right? Right now, a lot of things you can do, you know, model uh, with computers. All the structural analysis we learned to do by hand that took forever and was, you know, complicated and you drop a negative here and then you're just ruined. (laughs) You know, that's all, you can do it with finite element analysis on the computer and it's so much faster and better and higher fidelity, but you have to understand how that works um, and why that works um, cause otherwise then you're just going on and clicking buttons and, you know, you may not understand the implications of changing the design or, or things like that. So it's important to have the the foundation. I definitely think certain engineers, uh, will be using a lot of those high level math and, and, and skills. It just kind of depends on your job. Um, in my specific job the other day, I actually got to do some math and I pulled out a piece of paper and like did real math. And I was like, wow, like that was exciting. Um, <laughs> but. Uh, other people are going to be doing it, you know, all the time.
0: What was uh? So your path, what was it looking like when you were? I guess better question would be: you did two internships at Cessna. Was that kind of your goal? Was it like, all right, I did my internship. I did my internship at Cessna. I feel comfortable there. I want to work there. Or were you kind of like, oh, I've seen what Cessna has to offer. I want to go some other places.
1: So I loved working at Cessna. Um, I, I loved. I love their product family. How I could I could go out and fly a 172, and eventually work. You know, they can step you up from a 172 all the way to a Longitude. That's a pretty cool product line, um, and just the history. Uh, but I also grew up in Wichita, Kansas, and Wichita, Kansas is a great town for some people. It's just not exactly what I was looking for. Um, so I wanted to you know go somewhere with more more people, you know, more different kinds of people, uh, you know, more outdoor activities, and just just do something different, right? You know, I spent all my life in Wichita. I just wanted to go somewhere new. Um, so I kind of took my internships and said, thanks Cessna. That was really great experience. Um, and, uh, I'm going to (laughs) go look elsewhere. So, uh, ended up finding a job, uh, in Phoenix, Arizona, and that's where I am today. Was it hard to find that
0: job in Phoenix? What is the process of kind of, cause usually when people go to colleges, the, the local big city or the closest big city usually tries to get all that talent. Uh, for where you are now, was there a career fair and a lot of different companies all over the country came or did you have to search for this
1: job? Uh, yeah, it was. So for this job, it was it was a little bit of both. Um, there was a career fair at the University of Kansas Um the aerospace program. So I don't know how big the School of Engineering is at KU, but it's 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 large thousands and thousands of students. Um, but the aerospace program was very small. I mean, we started I think we started with 60 people in my year. And by the time we graduated, there was like 18 of us. So it's it's not a huge program. Um, so that means, you know, that most of the career fair is going to be dedicated to the petroleum engineers, chemical engineers, mechanical engineers, those kind of things. Less aerospace companies, unfortunately. Um, and it's a state school. Um, so their funding comes from the state and they want to keep you in the state. So you, you get Spirit Aerosystems, you know, Cessna or I guess Textron Aviation now. Um and in companies that are kind of in the state, right? Because that's, that's their goal is to educate people in the state, to stay in the state, to keep the state moving forward. Um, so the main way people find jobs outside of that sphere of influence is one person gets there. Like one Jayhawk makes it somewhere and then they start recruiting more Jayhawks. Or, you know, one Buckeye gets to wherever they want to go and they start bringing in more people, right? Um, so that's kind of what happened at, uh, with, with my job. One of my uh, friends in, in the major, she had an internship out here. And, um, when it came time to graduate, uh, that, that senior year, they were looking for another person and they said, Hey, we're looking for another person who's looking for a full-time job. Do you know anybody? And she said, Oh yeah, I know somebody who might be interested. And she asked me if, uh, I'd be interested. And I said, I'm interested in anything, you know, let me, <laughs> let me see what it's all about. And, uh, then through her, I was able to connect with the hiring managers and, and kind of go through the interview process. But yeah, the, uh, apply online is definitely a black hole in a lot of situations. So it certainly helps to to, you know, know someone, um, another place I interviewed at was in Dallas. Um, and it was, it was for L3. Um, and, and they, it's kind of, it's one of those companies. that's not, it's not a Boeing, right. But it's, it's not mom and pop. It's kind of in between. Uh, and they left a phone number up on their website for their office that was doing, you know, that hiring. And I just happened to dig through their website enough to find a phone number. I called like every week, left a message. They never answered. They never called me back. And then like. I don't know, after five or six weeks of trying, someone picked up the phone. <laughs> like, and so uh, then I said, hey, oh. yeah, I was like, hi, hi, hi don't hang up. <laughs> you know, I applied and uh, so she's like, oh, okay, let me go look. And then just because of that, she saw my you know resume and then said, oh, hey, maybe you should give this guy a call. And so it um, was good to look for those little, oopsie leave up a phone number on a website or something like that and exploit those loopholes
0: yeah show some initiative you gotta you gotta find a way to to separate yourself from the pack because i'm guessing there's quite a bit of people that are applying to l3 or textron or wherever it may be boeing whatever it is i mean you just got to find a way to separate yourself so that could either come off maybe annoying or not but you, you got the right person at the right time and they appreciated it so that seemed to help yeah. you out
1: huh Definitely a fine line between annoying and yeah. and uh, you know, go getter and, and good attitude, or annoying and we don't want to hire that and person. Stalk so walk her the line and stalker and put him in jail. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> well, what, so what happened with uh, what made you choose between the two jobs? Like, what are you looking for? I guess you specifically, what were you looking for to kind of find your career and find where you wanted to go work?
1: Yeah. Um, so I was looking less for the specific job and more at long term career growth opportunities with that company as well as location. Um, so uh, at Cessna, you know, I could have gone back to Cessna and I really liked the job. I liked the company, but the location, I mean, it was kind of just okay, this is this is not that working at Cessna is a last resort because it's a great place to work, but just living in Wichita and working there was my last pick. I wanted to go somewhere else. Um, and so I was pretty much looking anywhere else. Um, and it came down to look between the small suburb outside of Dallas that was pretty country or uh, Phoenix, Arizona, where I got off the airplane. I'd never been to Phoenix. I never even thought about Phoenix. Um, and I got off the airplane and was driving up the highway that splits the you know, city in, in two. Like it was the 51 for any locals. And it goes right through a mountain preserve in the middle of the city. And I grew up in Kansas where you didn't ever see anything in, in, in the skyline, right? And I was just blown away at how beautiful it is and the mountains and the terrain and you know, the plants. And I, the, seeing the saguaro cactuses, I was like, wow, it's just like the cartoons. They look I mean, I'd never seen one before. So it was just, it was when I came out here, that really sold me. And it was March too. So things were blooming. It was like 75 and sunny. Um, So yeah, definitely being in Phoenix is kind of what sold me on this. And, you know, obviously the job had to at least be good enough. And I I thought the job would be interesting. Um, Definitely a lot of good career growth and potential at the company, um, which was the most important thing. Uh, And the location seemed great.
0: Yeah, I mean, you can't go wrong with Phoenix, especially with some warm weather, some mountains, and some a lot of outdoor activities. It's a little oh, bit yeah. different than Wichita, that's for sure. You're not going to be having to worry about uh, crazy wind, and uh, I mean, there's wind, but crazy snowstorms and then tornadoes. So, yeah. But you also have monsoons and dust devils, or what is it? Um,
1: I can't haboob. Is that what it's called? Yep. Yeah, yep. They, that's what they call them. It's definitely if you look up a right and proper haboob from like the Middle East, the ones here, you're like, oh, this is kind of just like a mini, like not even close. But people will call it a haboob when the dust kind of blows up and you know, it, 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 does, everything turns kind of like reddish orange outside. You can taste it in your mouth and yeah, get a good old dust storm. Have you been through one before or since you've been there? Yeah. Um, a couple. So I live kind of on the North side of Phoenix and most of those type of dust storms kind of come from the South it seems. Um, but I have been down in the South Valley a couple of times and all of a sudden you're like, did it just get orange outside? And you look out the window and then you see this, like, you know, big thing of dust coming. You're like, oh boy, yeah, and uh, the car. Yeah, it's hard to drive. I mean, it's very dangerous to drive in them um, because then they're always followed by super strong storms. Um, you know, not like tornado type storms, but heavy rain and, and winds and. And then twenty minutes later, it's over, right? Oh, it never wow. happened. Yeah, um, but it's just for that that time. It's 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 pretty crazy.
0: Interesting. Yeah, I've I've never been through one before, but it's funny how each region of the country or the world has maybe it's not your bad weather you used to, but it does offer some terrible weather of its own. Yeah. I'm uh, sorry. Right, so you are now currently living in Phoenix. You are working at the company you're not doing. What I know we don't want to name the company, but we can kind of talk about what you do. So what do you do? What did you end up uh, getting into over there?
1: Yeah, so I'm an avionics systems engineer. Um, and before I took the job, I had even no idea what a systems engineer was or did. Uh, so uh, systems engineering is traditionally, um, you would spend five, 10, 15, 20 years as as an engineer working on specific products, being an engineer doing electrical design or doing, you know, specific engineering activities uh, across a large, I guess, breadth of activities. And then once you had that experience of the entire system, they said, you now have enough experience. And then you became a system engineer. Um, that viewpoint is changing a little bit. I think they're trying to get uh, more young engineers and and, and fresh thinking and, and minds into that industry. So we came in as a system engineer with, of course, no experience. Uh, and they invested in us to you know teach us the fundamentals of system engineering and, and really understand what it means to be a system engineer. Um, I know some colleges have system engineering minors, I think. I think uh, ASU and U of A in Arizona, I think they do. Um, but at KU, I mean, it was never really even mentioned. So, um, yeah, I came in and trained on how to be a system engineer while doing our job. Um, so that's kind of the systems engineering part. Um, but then it's applied for avionics. So uh, I work for uh, work on uh, integrated avionics systems uh, that essentially, you know, back in the day, you had federated boxes. You had a box that was your FMS. You had a box that was your, you know, ground procs. You had a box that did this, that, and the other. Now it's all in one cabinet, it's on processing cards, and it's all integrated. And we provide you a complete flight deck solution. Um, instead of having, you know, okay, well, our FMS is from this company and our displays from this company. We, we provide you the entire package. And uh, yeah, so pretty much anything the pilot interacts with as far as the AVANX are concerned is what we work on. Uh, my specific application has is is always been on business jets. Um, and it seems to be the theme of my career so far, because at Cessna, I worked on business jets. Um, all my senior design projects were designing a business jet family. And that was just the prompt for that year. And then now I still work on business jets. So <laughs> Looks it's like you're going to be in it, business jets for a while, huh? Yeah, luckily, I mean, they're pretty much like the, the coolest. Well, I, I'm not going to discriminate on any kind of airplanes because I love them all. But it is a great area to work in, especially with you know, you get all the the cool bells and whistles and the leading edge of technology and stuff in business jets. Yeah, business jets are pretty great, I'm not going to lie.
0: I, I enjoy oh, yeah. my time in a business jet and I fly the, the newest technology you can possibly fly right now with the, well, maybe you guys have some better, but the G5000 and the Latitude is pretty great. And it's crazy what avionics do now and what they control and how integrated they are, like you said, and how it's just, it's just amazing where we've come in 10, 15
1: years. Oh, for sure. Um, I mean, my experience with avionics prior to this was I took one instrumentation class in college and I flew with one of my buddies who had his, his certificate in college. And so it was like, okay, we had a six pack and a Garmin 430. And I come here. And so the main things I focus on now is kind of at a cockpit system level. Um, so, you know, we have teams that do software engineering and we have teams that do hardware engineering and kind of the lower level coding and work on specific functions. Um, I'm more at a high system, you know, higher system level kind of. Uh, as close as you can get to being, you know, what the pilot interacts with, that's the, syst- the level of the system I I, I work on, or at least from that perspective. Um, and then the main systems I work on are the FMS and told. Um, and if, if you're not familiar with that, uh, so FMS stands for flight management system, um, and it provides four main functions. Uh, so it does the navigation. Uh, so it pretty much accumulates all the data from the different sensors and says, I'm at this location. Uh, it does your flight planning. So, it's like the Google Maps, but for your airplane. <laughs> and then it does your performance computation. So this is, it's going to take you this long. This is your fuel burn. You know, if you cruise at this altitude, it would be more optimal. Uh, things like that. And then it also does um, your takeoff and landing data, which, you know, told. Uh, and that's, okay, well, it's 115 degrees in Phoenix. <laughs> and, you know, the density altitude is this. This is how much runway I have. This is how heavy my airplane is. Can I make it off this, this runway right now? Or... You know, you're coming into land and, you know, can I land with the runway available um, when it's icy and, you know, it's my brakes are failed or things like that. It, yeah. it does all those computations for you. Yep, it does.
0: And FMSs make your life much easier when you know how to use them. But if you don't know how to use it, it is going to be impossible to
1: figure out. <laughs> oh, yeah. And it yeah. is so that's the thing. It takes a long time to become good. Um at understanding the FMS and how it works, and and to be a good system engineer for it. Um, so you know, I've I've been doing it for three years, and I, I feel like I have a pretty good grasp on at least the system and how it works. But I mean, every every day I'm learning something new, and there's a lot of really great people to learn from. And it's just one of those things where, like, I've done some work for flight controls, which uh, flight controls is a higher level system when it comes to safety and and certification level A. Um, FMSs are generally level B or level C, uh, and so it, but that's a lot more defined, like, okay, you go into this state and there's logic diagrams you follow and it's kind of, it ticks these two preconditions. You go into this state, whereas the FMS, there's so much input. And yeah, there are, obviously we have requirements and we have logic and you can follow it, but there's just so many things that it accumulates into all of the decisions it makes. And and it's just so complicated, um, or complex. Uh, and so it, it makes it really interesting.
0: Complicated and complex is a good way to describe it. And uh, they're getting so innovative, and they're getting kind of more touchscreen, kind of like uh, mm-hmm. not necessarily like an iPhone, but like the interface is trying to be like more simplified, like that, where just like you, you, you have your menu options, and it's less of a, a keyboard, you know. So what we found is that some of the older pilots that aren't as tech savvy are actually having a lot of issues with figuring out how to, how to understand how the new FMSs work. And it's really interesting, the kind of dynamic that we're coming into. Now, it's not everyone. It's definitely a couple of them and not the, the vast majority, but it can be a kind of a hiccup for an older pilot to, to dig into the technology.
1: Yeah, I, it's funny that makes me think of. So um, we, we have essentially the new platform of our avionics so so the product i work on goes on goal streams right so we have uh legacy goal streams that have the mcdus which are the you know now color displays but back in the day it was just green font you know on the black screen and you have all the physical keyboard you know physical buttons and the the, the alphabet in not qwerty but in abc <laughs> and uh then now we have touchscreens like if you go look at the g7 g500 g600 um it's a touchscreen environment And when I started, uh, that's what I focused on was all the touchscreens. Um, and so that's what I learned and they're, they're much more intuitive. It's, it's, you can do so much with it because that screen can become whatever you want. You can put anything you want on that screen on the MCDU. You're limited in a certain number of characters, a certain number of lines. You have the line select keys, you have the hardware buttons. So it's very restrictive. Um, So I learned on the the touchscreens and then after about six months of working solely on those systems and doing all the lab testing on the touchscreens, you know, interacting with the system that way, I had to go and work on the G650, which is a really awesome business jet, but that one uses MCDUs. And so that was a huge learning curve for me because that's not as intuitive. That's like rote memorization of where menus are and where things are. Uh, And so everyone at work. Is kind of either an MCDU person or or a touchscreen person in, in their preference, and it's a lot of the people who've been there for a long time like the MCDU and hate the touchscreen because they're like it's I can't understand you know it's just new to them, and for me I learned on the touchscreen and it seems more intuitive to me. And going back to the MCDU, you can learn how to do it quickly because it is there's the buttons and you memorize everything, but it's 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 hard to learn.
0: Yeah, I would agree, and uh, I've I've seen that and. It's definitely just different. You know, you have to force yourself to learn when it's so comfortable and easy to do it the other way. But it's just, it's just another, another thing that comes up in your training. You just have to be forced to figure it out. Yep. So you are also a pilot, correct?
1: Yes. I'm a private pilot with a high performance endorsement.
0: What made you, did you always want to get your private pilot license or is this kind of like you're at an airport one day, you've been around playing so long, you're like, you know what? I actually want to fly
1: this. Um, sort of the latter, actually. Um like I said, in high school, I didn't even think of it as an option. In college, the first couple of years, I never really thought about getting my pilot certificate. I mean, people would say, Oh, are you you're an aerospace engineer? Does that mean you're a pilot? And I'd always say, No, that doesn't mean I'm a pilot, like they're separate. Um and then I went flying uh with one of my one of my best friends in college, and he got his certificate, I think, when he was 16 or 17. So he'd been flying for a while. Um, and I remember the first time I went flying with him, I was like, Oh what have I been, where, you know, where has this been? <laughs> Why have I not thought of this? Um, so, so then from that moment on, I think that was like sophomore or junior year of, of college, I think maybe sophomore year. Um, I, I knew as soon as I got into the industry and started actually having a job that paid me money, um, I would be going to get my private certificate because it was just, you know, you, you catch, I already loved airplanes. and Then I caught the pilot bug and I was like, I have to do it.
0: That's crazy. Uh, has it kind of changed your goals to want to be a professional pilot or you just want to do it for fun?
1: Oh, that is that is something I wrestle with a lot. Um, and you know, depending on the day, you're gonna get a different answer. But generally, I I really love my job. I love being an engineer. I love I love my specific job, but also just engineering in general. Uh, but I don't know. Some days, you know, some days I'm like, oh man, I can get my ratings. And obviously now is not the greatest time to get into being a pilot, but obviously the industry will get better. It will, you know, with time it'll improve. Um, and, you know, I do think about, I wonder, you know, should I, is that something I want to explore? Um, and for right now, the answer is no, but I'm definitely going to go and, uh, you know, my goal is to get my instrument rating obviously next, uh, and then get my commercial rating. And, and there's tons of opportunity to either flight instruct in Phoenix or do, you know, fly some jumpers or some sort of, you know, commercial flying, um, in the area, because I still want to keep my job. I like my job and, you know, I, I'm not ready to, to to jump careers. Um, but it is, it is in the back of my mind.
0: What would your fiance say if you came home one day and you're like, all right, I made up a mind. I want to be an airline pilot. Cause uh, the reason why I ask is if someone doesn't get into a relationship and having the idea that they're going to be gone so often, it can be really tough for them to get used to that. Once it happens, has she kind of written it off? But like, there's no way you can be an airline pilot. I want you gone
1: all the time. Or is she really supportive. Just like, yeah, go do it. Whatever you want to do. She, I'm so lucky. She is the most supportive individual I've ever met. Um, so, you know, I feel like most couples who have one person who loves aviation the other person is either you know loves aviation just as much or is kind of like yeah indifferent. there's no like oh, I kinda like it. it's either a love or a eh, not really my thing um and she definitely it, it is not her thing um she doesn't enjoy you know even when we fly, it's kind of silly, but I just love being in the airport and watching the airplanes and being you know even just being a pastor, I think is kind of a fun experience um and of course, flying then is that's just the you know one thing I love to do the most, um, and she is not as comfortable in airplanes, not as comfortable in that you know space. Um, but she is so supportive, uh, and you know she she says, "Look, if that's what you want to do, um, you know being gone would be difficult, and especially the you know taking the huge pay cut from at that point being an engineer for five, ten years, swapping to you know right seat of of some little you know who knows what small operation." would be massive, but luckily she's, she's incredibly supportive.
0: That's awesome. Well, it's good to hear because it, it takes to be successful in this career and to have a good life and a life outside of aviation, you definitely need that support. No matter who that is, whether it's a, a friend, whether it's a partner or whatever it may be, it's definitely an important thing. And everyone has to be on board, especially if you're a career changer, because it can be pretty interesting if you, if you decide to get into this later in your life and the other one's not necessarily on board for that, because it's a lot. It's a lot to be married, to be dating anyone that's involved in aviation.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think, I mean, right now, kind of the scenario I play out in my head is, you know, follow this career path for a while. Um, you know, I have some, I have my own career goals in engineering and business and things like that. Um, and then maybe, you know, maybe reach, reach the point I want to reach and and quote unquote retire, you know, at 50 after having instructed and, and done all kinds of flying as, as a hobby. Um, you get some hours and try and find some sort of business shit operation, you know, fly a guy who, goes, you know, flies around the Southwest or something, just do some, some business jet flying. Because if I did make the career jump, um, I definitely would want to fly business aviation. It's just the world that I have lived in so far, but I just, I don't know. I think that's the kind of flying that interests me the most. Um, airlines are awesome. And, and you know, the career potential there is great. Um, but I, I like the idea of, you know, the way you talk about, you don't know where you're going to go. You can get into much, much smaller airports, uh, much different environments. And it's, it's a lot less up to, in certain operations, I mean, it depends, but oftentimes you're doing your own flight planning, you're doing your own, you know, performance calculations, or, you know, you're doing a lot of more stuff yourself as the pilot, as opposed to with the airline, all right, you get your load sheet, you got your route, you've got all of that, you just punch it into the MCDU or data link it in, and you off you go.
0: Yeah. Drew, do you think if you would have taken your first flight in high school, that maybe you'd be on a completely different career path and you'd be oh, flying with yeah. airlines? Yeah.
1: I, I think it definitely would be a strong chance that I'd be in a different career path. Um, you know, I, I, I talked to my fiance a lot about that a lot. You know, we've been, especially lately, we've had a lot of time to just talk. So um, <laughs> that could be good or bad. <laughs> yeah. Luckily it's been mostly good. So yeah. I, I've been saying, She's not you, not know, like, you know,
0: you're not as smart as I thought you were. I think I'm going to see some other people.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, thankfully not. Yeah, that's good. Um, but I have said, man, I wonder if I would have like even thought about becoming a pilot in high school because then, I mean, if I had done that, I probably would be a professional pilot, not a, not an engineer, but You know, I I still enjoy, I'm happy with the path I've been on so far and and doing it as a hobby is is fun too, because, you know, flying the 172s, you know, the airline guys might think, be like, oh God, that was rough flying those 172s and it's not really flying or whatever, but it's, it's fun to me. I mean, you're out there bouncing around and, you know, it's, it's, it's a very different kind of flying and I really enjoy it.
0: You'd be surprised at how many airline pilots or corporate pilots, fractional pilots, whatever it may be actually kind of wish that they could still have that opportunity because it's hard to go back. It's expensive to go back. Like you, you make the money and you create a lifestyle and it doesn't always afford you the chance to go fly a small plane. But a lot of us out there flying a bigger metal or bigger airplanes or some things that you dream about flying, we're actually dreaming that we could be flying that airplane. Now, and in Arizona on a really hot day doing uh take touch and goes and, and student flights. Oh, maybe man. not, but like someone that yeah. owns maybe like a carbon cub or like a two oh six and just going to fly for fun or bonanza, a lot of guys that I fly with I'll always talk about how they wish they could do
1: that or they really wish they could do it. So enjoy where you're at and enjoy the flying you're doing for sure. Oh yeah. I definitely have had so much fun with the flying and um you know, living in, in Arizona is is such a, a great place to be for flying. I mean, obviously it's a huge Phoenix itself is a huge flight training capital of the world. Um, but it, just as as a pilot, it's a great place to be because you know I can fly um 40 minutes and be in, and, and that's in a 172, mind you, 40 minutes at hundred knots. Um, and I could be in, you know, completely different climate. It's not the desert, you've got pine trees, there's snow on the ground. Um You know, you can go to the high desert you can go to you can go to Flagstaff, which you know then you're gonna be at crazy high elevation, you can go skiing um, you can go even deeper into the desert down south to like Tucson or Yuma or, or you, there's just so much landscape to see um and that's been one of the most fun things that that I've experienced as a pilot is getting to see uh how beautiful Arizona is and how beautiful the desert is um and that was like the main inspiration, so I started like after I got my certificate, you know, I started filming my flights and kind of putting together uh, videos of of my flights, like flight vlogs, right? And uh, the big thing that I I like doing is just, you know, it's it's about seeing the scenery and seeing how different it is. Because in Kansas, when I went flying with my friend, the flying was fun. (laughs) But and you have an infinite number of places to land, God forbid, you have an emergency. But it's not as exciting. You know, you're flying at 3000 feet, and you're 2500 feet in the air. And uh, it's all flat. And here, you know, I remember out here when I did my first cross country as a student um, and I was like, we're going to get to 8,500 feet. I'm like, whoa, I've never been that high in a little airplane before. And now, you know, regularly, if I, you know, if I go to Tucson or something, um, you know, 9,500 feet or 11,500 feet is, is the regular um, just because you've got terrain. And if you do have an engine failure, you know, you got to find a suitable spot or an airport because not every field is good.
0: Yeah, definitely not. I mean, it's definitely, uh, it, it's cool to, to be in a single plane and say, yeah, I'm at 11,000 feet. You know, if your plane is capable of going up there, it might take you a while to climb up that high, depending yeah. on how low you are, but it, sometimes it's necessary for crossing the terrain and making sure you have a good gliding distance to find somewhere to land because it's not Wichita. You're not in Kansas anymore, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> yes,
1: you know? exactly. Yeah. yeah well,
0: hey, sure. um, I have one last question. I'll do rapid fire, but you are kind of say right now you have the opportunity to talk to your own high school or people that are interested in getting in aerospace engineering or aviation. So specifically for you, let's do aerospace engineering. What are three tips you would give someone in high school to prepare themselves for the career that you're in for college, for everything? What are kind of your three biggest tips that you would tell them to set themselves up for a great future?
1: Oh man, that's a good question. Um, I think the first thing is, and this is kind of either you have it or you don't. But make sure you've got the passion uh, and, and that you care about it, um, because if you're going to be spending sixty hours a week, you know, working on on schoolwork, you know, minus all the social interactions and things you're going to miss from from doing it, you know, make sure you really enjoy it, because otherwise you're not going to want to do it, and it's just going to be be not enjoyable. So number one is make sure you have the passion for it. Um, number two, I think, don't be afraid to ask for help uh, and and utilize your support network, because I didn't get through. My degree alone, right? You have I had lots of good friends and teammates and and people that you rely on um in, in different ways and people that rely on you. And and the only way you're gonna be able to get through it is is through you know asking for help and leaning on your support and supporting others. Yeah. I would and definitely then, agree. Yeah, um, so important. And then number three, don't forget to have fun too. Um, because you know, I'm a I'm people will tell you I'm pretty serious. Uh, But I like to have fun. So, I, you know, I'm serious, but silly sometimes. So I I think it's important to always have a good time with what you're doing. Um, And, you know, make sure you try and look at the bright side and just just enjoy where you're at. Agreed.
0: I 100% agree. Those Those are great words of wisdom to anyone listening to this that wants to either be a pilot or an aerospace engineer. It could work out for anything that you want to do. All right, man, I have some rapid fire section questions for you. So all you need to do is just answer these questions as quick and as fast with no explanation at all.
1: You ready? All right, I'm ready. All right, what is your favorite airliner? Uh, favorite airliner is the 747. Corporate jet. Gulfstream, well, G650 now, um, but the recently announced G700 will be my favorite as soon as it's uh, up and flying and certified. What about
0: a small piston airplane?
1: Oh, man. Uh, I, I've never flown one, but I got a soft spot for like the SR22s and I would, I would love to have an SR22 turbo. Oh, cool. That'd be fun. Uh, what is your favorite airline to fly on? Uh, I exclusively fly Southwest. I'm not being paid for them, you know, paid to say <laughs> this, but I just, <laughs> I've got the credit card to get good miles and I go. enjoy flying with them.
0: All right. Piper or Cessna for, uh, for training or just to, to go rent a plane. If you to go rent a plane, there's a, a Piper Arrow and a Cessna 172. You're checked out on both. Which one are you going to take?
1: Uh, I'm going to take this Cessna just because, you know, growing up in Wichita and working at Cessna, I've got a soft spot for it. Um, and that's what I've done all my my flying in as well.
0: Would you rather fly as a passenger on a CRJ or an ERJ?
1: Definitely, definitely an ERJ. And fun fact uh, yeah, some of the similar software and avionics are, are on some of the ERJs. Oh, cool. Uh, so worked on some of those. That's cool.
0: How was uh, your private pilot check, right? Would you describe it as difficult or is it pretty easy?
1: Um, I am a sick and twisted individual when it comes to tests and things like that. And I get this really great rush out of it and it's kind of enjoyable. So it was a lot of fun. Um, and it was also fun to just kind of showcase all I had learned, right? I do did, did my flight training pretty quickly, you know, and flying four or five times a week. Um, so it was fun to be able to say, look, I learned all this stuff.
0: Would you rather fly one very, very long trip? So on a 172, like four and a half hours, five hours, would you rather have
1: to have like eight takeoff and landings in a day? Definitely on, at least in the 172 or the 182, uh, a lot of short legs.
0: Yeah. Uh, what is something you wish you knew
1: before you became a pilot? Uh, I wish I knew that I could become a, a pilot before, earlier, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah. I wish I would have known that was an option, you know, growing up Wichita, there's so much aviation around me and I can't believe I, I missed that.
0: Who in the industry would you like to meet most? That could be alive or they could have passed on.
1: Um, I kind of got two answers for that. So one's one's, you know, industry giants, I'd love to go back and talk to the Wright brothers and just say, look at where we're at now. Look at this, you know? Yeah, did you and ever I've think we'd asked, get this far? Yeah, yeah. And just ask them like, what what do they think about it? And, and just kind of talk to them about how far we've come since, you know, what they did. Um, and then the other one, you know, I I do enjoy watching, you know, consuming, I guess, flying content and, and watching flight blogs and things like that. So it'd be cool to meet like Steve-O or, or Nico from Nico's Wings and just kind of talk to them about the flying they do. Because um, it's very different than a lot of a lot of flying that most guys do.
0: Yeah, for sure. What is one thing about aviation, or what is your favorite thing about aviation? Just the thing that you love most about aviation.
1: Oh, so the thing that I love most, besides actually flying, um, is going to be just exactly what we're doing here. I mean, you can talk to anybody about it, and I know that's kind of a common theme uh, of what people answer in your podcast. But I mean, it's so true. Anybody from any background, how no matter how different you might be, as soon as someone finds out you like airplanes, even if you're not a pilot. You instantly can talk for hours. Right.
0: I mean, case in point, this podcast right now. I talked to you for what four minutes before, and then now we've been talking for an hour. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's crazy. Um, What is the worst flight you've ever had as a pilot? Kind of maybe the the most when you've had the most fear, or you're just one where you really got down. You're like, oh, I don't want to do that again.
1: Yeah, this is. I've got a great story for that. I'm I'm glad you brought that question up. So. This was actually, and I, and everyone has one of these flights, right? You're doing so well in your training and then you get your check rides coming up in three days and then you just have the worst flight of your life. Um, so this was actually like three days before my check ride. And, um, I went out to the, to the practice area and we're doing, you know, we're doing all the maneuvers. Right. And the, the stalls were just like the power on stalls were just not happening. Right. Um, you know, I was dipping wings and, there was never any like safety concerns, but it just wasn't executing the way I wanted it to be executed, and and I wasn't you know hitting hitting the altitudes perfectly, and it was just all around not great. So we called and We can't. We're coming back, and uh, when we had left, I don't remember the winds exactly, but they were you know something like the winds were favoring run, runway three. Um, and by the time we got back into the pattern, which was an hour after we left, or not even an hour after we left, the winds had done a hundred eighty degree shift, and there was uh, the winds were much stronger. Um, and they were still landing runway three. So we got in the pattern. We're coming back in. Um, thank God I was with my flight instructor. Um, pilots had been reporting, you know, a bunch of turbulence on final. And, and one guy had said, oh, I got some light wind shear on final, you know, five knots, plus or minus five knots. Um, and so we we come in, we turn final. And we're pretty, we had a pretty long final because they, they had to extend our downwind leg. And I, it just felt like we got hit, like we hit a wall almost. And our airspeed, you know, looking back on... on on the uh, uh four flight at least our ground speed dropped like twenty knots. Um and so we hit some serious wind shear and uh so we went you know immediately my instructions like go around and we were we were so far out right I I was like oh we have so much time she's like go around and so I we went full power and climbed up and was pretty much at pattern pretty quickly right over the runway. Um and just the whole time we were getting thrown around out of nowhere, um hitting some wind shear. Um and then pretty much we did another circuit and everybody, I think there was three guys in the pattern. Everyone was reporting wind shear on final, wind shear on final. Uh, and they, they released new information and the winds were like, you know, one nine zero at like 10 and they were still landing runway three. And I was like, we have a two one runway. Can we use that? And you know, they still hadn't transitioned. So we, we were like, we'll give it one more go. And, and again, on final, we just got some serious wind shear and uh, it was, it was pretty scary. Um, and, you know, just cause you're like, oh my gosh, You really feel uh, like Mother Nature can do whatever she wants with you at that point. And uh, so I called up the tower and asked, I said, hey, uh, do you have any plans to switch the runway to 2-1? Because this is getting over our tailwind component. And he's like, aircraft calling, say, identifier. And I was like, oh, no, I'm in trouble. Um, (laughs) So I told him. And he goes, oh, yeah, no problem. We'll work that in for you. Just make a left 360. He's like, oh, thank God. So they switched the runways. Um, we ended up coming into land. We did a no flap landing at a, like a hundred knots, which of course is like 35 knots fast on a Cessna. But with the wind shear, you can never be careful. You know, you got to be careful. Speed your friend. And, uh, yeah. And that was, that was, I learned so much on that flight. And also we got on the ground and I was like, thank God. I don't want <laughs> to do the that. One time, I was so happy. Was it a Scottsdale? It was at Scottsdale. So
0: you said three, two, one. I was just imagining you were over Scottsdale. So I'm glad I I had it right.
1: (laughs) Yep. I do. I do all my flying. um, At least when I'm pilot out of Scottsdale. So yeah. You probably see
0: our, our planes come in there quite a bit uh, going over to signature or Atlantic, whatever it is. I can't remember
1: anymore. Atlantic, right? Yeah. Uh, It's, you know, what's fun is, coming in on final and, you know, I'm doing my 65 knots and you've got like a a Gulf stream sitting there waiting for you to land.
0: (laughs) We're judging your landing. I just want you to know that we're watching the whole thing. We're like, Oh
1: my gosh, add power, add power, add power. I feel, I feel the pressure, but it's definitely fun to be like, yeah, wait for me in my little 172. (laughs) That's funny.
0: (laughs) That's cool. Uh, I have some more questions for you real quick. Uh, What's your, um, what's your favorite airport to land at?
1: Uh, Sedona, definitely Sedona.
0: Least favorite airport.
1: Ooh. Hmm. You know, I don't have a least favorite airport that I've been to. All of them, I haven't had any terrible experiences. Um, So I guess I I landed at, I think, Casa Grande once at night, and it was dark and not the best time. So maybe that one, but it's not anything against that airport. For sure. No,
0: that's totally fine. Uh, You kind of mentioned that you think all airplanes are good-looking, but I'm going to give you a chance here into this. Do you have an ugliest airplane you've ever seen?
1: (sighs) Oh, yeah, I do. And every time I listen to your podcast, I die on the inside a little bit. (laughs) I actually think the Piaggio P-180 is... Is a decent looking airplane. It's definitely not beautiful. And that's um, it, but, guys.
0: Thanks for coming to the podcast. I pretty know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, so actually, my, the guy who started the aerospace program at KU, his name is Jan Roskam. Uh, and he was this Dutch guy. Uh, and he's a d- giant in the industry. He consulted on all kinds of major design. You know, he, he, every OEM had him to help design airplanes. Um, and he was, the, I think, the lead designer, heavily involved with the P-180. And so they talked at KU all the time. Our, one of our professors just thought the Piaggio Q;A was the greatest airplane of all time because it's got three lifting surfaces. It's way more efficient. Um, so every time you say that, I'm like, oh gosh, I die a little on the inside. Actually, I think the I think it's like the BAE Nimrod. It's one of those radar aircraft or something. That's Nimrod. truly ugly.
0: Anything named Nimrod just doesn't even have a chance to be a good looking airplane.
1: Yeah, why pick that name? <laughs> You're just gonna get bullied. Like, come That's on. Funny.
0: So I'm guessing I won't get any calls to come visit Kansas University to go talk because since I talk so much crap about the Piaggio.
1: Yeah, yeah you might have to sign something saying you'll respect <laughs> the Piaggio if you go visit. Never. No, I'm just kidding.
0: <laughs> all right, I got a couple more. Uh, Airbus or Boeing? Boeing. Favorite airline livery? And you can't say Southwest since you already said that's your favorite airline.
1: Uh, I think, well, so Air New Zealand's cool just because it's all black. That's pretty mm-hmm. neat. But I do enjoy the new American, like the soft gray. I think that looks pretty good.
0: Yeah. What's the biggest
1: one in your career? Oh boy. I think just getting a job out here uh, in Phoenix at a company I really had not thought about doing something I'd never really thought about and having that opportunity to come and do that. What's
0: the biggest regret of your career if you have one?
1: Uh, I, I try not to have regrets in life, but I definitely would wish I would have known I could get my pilot certificate sooner. Perfect.
0: All right. Those are all the rapid fire questions I have for you. Michael, thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. It's, it's really great to talk to someone that is in aviation, but not necessarily flying for the airlines or building their time and just seeing how you're making your path. And like you said, you're struggling with that right now. Like, do I go to the airlines? Do I stay where I'm at? And you're going to have a good career no matter what you choose. So it's going to be fun. Uh, you can't really make a bad, bad choice, which is sometimes make it even worse. <laughs> but yeah. I wish you the best in everything. Keep me updated on what you're doing. And I appreciate you coming on the podcast
1: yeah thanks thanks for having me on the podcast It was a great time and just wanted to say you know if anyone has any questions or similar you know for some reason they have some sort of question they want to ask me you know i'm happy to happy to talk and reach out and help with anybody um you can find me on instagram or youtube or just search like the desert pilot on uh, youtube or instagram and feel free to message me
0: cool man well awesome i hope you have a great day and uh have a great one thanks you too no problem man. AV Nation, that is the end of episode 131 of the Pilot to Pilot Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please check out our website, Uh There are no more hats left. Well, actually, I think there's one more hat left, so if you want to buy that one, go for it. But they are, uh, I'm thinking about getting some new ones. So let me know if you think a dad hat, maybe some camo Pilot the Pilot hats. We also have some Baby Shark merch coming out. I know you're probably going to hate me for doing this. I should get the song to play when you open the box for it and everything. Uh, we'll see. But <laughs> we got some Baby Shark merch going on. So check out the Instagram at pilot, the pilot. So you can vote on that. We have uh, the first one's gonna be Honda jet working on the Sirius vision jet and maybe a Premiere. So we'll see what we got going for you all. And uh, I appreciate you guys listening to this. Make sure you follow us on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook, all social media, check out the website and make sure you to leave a review if you haven't already. I really, really appreciate it. I will see you next week. And as always, happy flying.